0: Hi, I'm Kevin Alves with Big Talk Podcasts. I believe that everyone needs to treat themselves for a job well done. Whether it's surviving a workday jam-packed with mind-numbing meetings, or that five-mile bike ride down the lake with your friends, nothing says, I fucking crushed this like a delicious cold beer. And there's no finer place to treat yourself than Chicago's northernmost taproom, Howard Street Brewing. Just steps from the Howard Street Red Line, Howard Street Brewing offers a cozy 37-seat tap room that's perfect for catching up with old friends or making some new ones. And don't let their one-barrel system fool you. It's perfectly pumping out a rotating menu of amazing beers like Roger's Proud Pale Ale, the Better Late Than Never Pilsner, and the This Is What Happens Larry Belgian Saison. Not sure what to try? Get a flight. Try them all. Like that beer and want some for the after party? Grab a few growlers for the road. You want some sweet merch with your beers? They've got hats and t-shirts ready for you too. So if you're in Chicago or planning a trip to Chicago, be sure to check out Howard Street Brewing. Open Tuesday through Sunday. No cash, cards only. Oh, and did I mention that there's entertainment every Tuesday night and trivia every Wednesday night? Oh, 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 and did I mention that you can have food from all the local spots delivered right to your table? Oh, 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 and did I mention that they're pet friendly? This place is the shit. So, check out Howard Street Brewing, located at 1617 West Howard Street in Chicago, and at HowardStreetBrewing.com. Be sure to tell them Big Talk sent you. Welcome to Based on a True Story, where Chicago's best writers and storytellers take their true personal stories and adapt them into wild tales of fiction. Recorded live the fourth Tuesday of every month at Howard Street Brewing, located at 1617 West Howard Street in Chicago. Our first story comes from writer, actor, comedian Jamie Black.
1: In 2006, I went to L.A. to try to make it as an actor. I had no real plan, which is why I'm here today telling this story. The first job I got was as a leader for corporate team builders. I would lead corporate types through a ropes course. Uh, We usually did these events on Friday nights and they took place up in the mountains. We would drive up into the mountains, do the event, and we'd get to spend the night. It was like a mini staycation. These were luxury cabins. The floors were heated. There were chefs in the gourmet kitchen. This was kind of a dream job. The mountains of LA are beautiful, except when there's a snowstorm. And this particular weekend, there was a snowstorm. The snow was falling heavily. They closed the mountain. No one can come up, no one can go down. So I settled in for a long, comfy weekend. There's a grocery store up the road, so a couple of guys, Jeff and Alan, went up there to get some liquor so that we could have a little party. They took a snowmobile since the roads weren't plowed and wouldn't be plowed until at least morning. While they were gone, me and some of the other guys started playing Euchre. I hadn't played Euchre in years, but it came back to me pretty quickly. After about an hour, we realized that Jeff and Allen hadn't come back from the store. It shouldn't take this long, even though there's 10 inches of snow on the ground and the snow keeps falling, they should have been back by now. We decided that maybe someone should go and look for them. One of the guys, Josh, has a four-wheel drive truck that could get through the snow easily. So he went. He and I went out to look for Jeff and Alan. We start up the road, and there aren't even any tracks. It had continued to snow most of the evening, and all the tracks had been covered up. When we get to the grocery store, there's no one in sight. The lights are on, but there's no one in the store, not even the store clerks. We look around for any traces of anything or anyone. There was nothing. Josh decides to go look in the back. He's white, so I let him go. (laughs) I stay in front, just waiting for anyone to come through the door. It's eerily quiet. This isn't unusual, as there's no noise from the city in the mountains. After a few minutes, I called out to him, Josh, what you doing back there? Silence. So I called him louder. Hey, Josh, what's going on back there? Still silence. I don't like this. If I were white, I might go investigate. (laughs) But because I'm black, I decide to go back to the truck and wait. I walk outside and the truck is gone. I thought that son of a bitch snuck out the back and left me. Now I'm gonna have to walk back to the cabin in the snow. I ain't got any snowshoes. I start to head back towards the cabin. It's at least a mile down the road, but without snowshoes, it would be a long mile. I finally make it back to the cabin. As I'm walking across the parking lot, I notice that there are a lot less cars than there were when we left. This doesn't make sense to me because no one can leave the mountain, and yet almost all of the cars are gone. My car is still in the parking lot, though, so I hop in. I want to make sure my battery is charged when they open up the mountain. The radio comes on as soon as the car starts. It's nothing but static. I scan for more station. There's nothing but static. I thought for sure that I'd been listening to the radio on the way up the mountain. True, sometimes you lose reception the higher up you go, but I'd been listening to the Carpenters when I pulled into the parking lot. I distinctly remember singing, I'm on the top of the world looking down on the nation, and the only explanation I can find is the love that I found Never since you've been around. Your love's put me at the top of the world. Yes, I do know the words to Carpenter's songs, and I do know how to play Euchre. Um, Anyway, I digress. Uh, There's no reason why I shouldn't be able to listen to the radio. (laughs) Finally, I find a radio station that is playing rap. I'm not a big rap fan. You probably guessed that from my knowledge of Carpenter's songs. (laughs) So I keep scanning, and I find another station. This time, it's R&B. Great, this I can handle but I was curious, what other radio stations could I find? I found a gospel station, another R&B and a hip hop station. The only stations available were black stations. After I let the car heat up for a few minutes, I head back to the cabin. I walk in and it's almost empty. When I left, there were at least 30 people in the cabin. Now it was empty, where'd they all go? I looked around and our euchre table was still there. The cards were arranged as though they had started another game when Josh and I left. I walk back into the kitchen and the cook is leaning back in a chair, smoking a cigar and listening to an R&B station. I asked him where where everybody went. He said, didn't you hear on the radio? Black Jesus done smote all the white people. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, smote? And he said, yeah, he smote all the white people. I was like, now, I remember God smiting some people in the Bible. I don't remember white people just disappearing. Anyway, I said, all of them? And the cook just shrugged. I was like, well, who's gonna balance my portfolio? The cook just pours himself another shot of Hennessy and continues to smoke his cigar. I turn to explore the rest of the cabin to see if there are any other survivors. I go over to the women's side of the cabin and I found a young 20-something black woman sitting in the corner crying. I ask her, what was wrong? She says, my best friend was smitten. (laughs) I say, shouldn't you be happy about that? Doesn't that mean she was in love with you? And she was like, yeah, that's what I said. She was smitten. So I asked, then why are you crying? And she said, because black Jesus done smote all the white people. And I was like, I'm really confused about the use of this word. (laughs) But I left her alone. I go to my room in the cabin, sit down on my bed. I'm tired and cold and I have a lot to think about. So I take out my phone, open up my Stash app, and go to work trying to balance my portfolio.
0: Our next story comes from writer, director, producer, Bindu Purori.
2: Um, My name is Bindu. Uh, I'm really, really happy to be here. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity. Um, I usually write um, and perform pretty dense and scripted content, Um, but it turns out this is, kind of an opportune week in some ways, so I um, have decided to just kind of lean into it. You have caught your narrator uh, at one of the most consequential moments in their life. Uh, And so, in order to honor that, um, I realized that I, despite the theme of the show, owe myself. Um, the truth and there is a certain kind of truth that uh, is worth speaking in front of other people Um, and simply by saying the truth to someone else it becomes a sort of fiction because then you get to speak about yourself from the viewpoint of someone who is not you Um, you get to talk about yourself as another person and through the um, through, through the grace of that, I'd like to be able to offer myself a little bit of comfort in this time and maybe a little bit of generosity and grace that I might not have been able to otherwise. Cryptic, I know. Yesterday, I booked a flight. Uh, I decided yesterday morning that I would book this flight and yesterday afternoon, I booked this flight. This flight is going to Atlanta um, and it is this weekend. On the other side of that flight are my parents Uh, I decided today that I will be having a conversation with my parents that I have been figuring out whether I would have and how to have for my entire adult life. And as a result of that conversation, catastrophic things will happen that I also have been waiting for my entire adult life. And that means I realized a couple of hours ago that this week is the week before the moment that my whole life has been leading up to until now. And uh, this is all true. Um, Since I can't really spend time talking about the complexities of Indian immigrant culture, caste endogamy, forced marriage, Uh, and trauma uh, I'll instead trace a little bit of this story with the truth Uh, when I was 19 years old I had just moved to the United States I was in college at Hogwarts in Chicago basically And I woke up one morning in the dorm room that Carl Sagan once lived in, reached down and touched my stomach, and found a machine there. Uh, The machine was heavy. It was made of steel and iron that was already rusting. There was liquid leaking from the bottom. It had strong ridges on one side and what looked like an anvil on the other side, and my stomach was nowhere to be found. Instead, there was a machine. Just a couple seconds after I noticed that the machine was now occupying my torso, it started making a sound, and it started tightening, and it started grumbling, and it started pulling at the skin everywhere else on my torso and on my lower stomach, and in my heart, and on my lungs. I realized that the machine was tightening. I was alone in my dorm room. This was the first time that it happened. It got tighter and tighter and tighter until I realized that my limbs couldn't move anymore. And then it loosened a little bit, and then it tightened about 20% further, and it stayed that way and it was pulling at my skin, essentially rendering me immobile for about two, two and a half hours. Um, Finally, I managed to figure out how to move my body, swing my legs out of bed, get onto the ground, and make my way to class. Uh, And funnily enough, by the time I got to class and sat down, I forgot the machine was there. But it was still twisting at my skin, and at all of my entrails on my insides. And it stayed there, uh, I would soon come to realize, on and off for about 12 years. Um, The next day, I called my mother. And my mother told me that I had disappointed her because I hadn't called her the day before because I was uh, preoccupied with this steampunk machine that had taken up half of my body. I tried to tell her what had happened uh, and I told her what classes I went to that day in an effort to make some kind of conversation Uh, and what she returned to me in response um, was a revelation that she had had a lie detector running on the other side of the phone while I was talking. Turns out, everything I said in that conversation scientifically proven to be completely false. First time that had happened in my life. Over the course of the next three years, while I was in college, I realized every time I called home and said anything about my life, about the world, made any statement that I knew to be true when it left my mouth, it returned with a glaring red beep, apparently, I'm I'm assuming, sounding on the other end of the line, letting me know that the very content of my language and its meaning would always return as a lie. And these lies added up. And uh, they ended up really deeply deteriorating the relationship that I had with my mom, then with my dad, then with a lot of my extended family. In 2015, a frog that I had met about five or six years earlier hopped into my pocket. We got onto a plane and we went to India. We went to a very small town in the state of Andhra Pradesh where a gigantic wedding was happening. The frog carried all of the children at that wedding on its back and gave them joyrides through the day. Indian weddings, I'm sure you might have heard, are very long, and the children in said weddings need to be preoccupied occupied with things sometimes. Uh, no one asked the frog to do this. Uh, it just started offering children rides. Uh, and the children were mesmerized. They had never seen an American frog before. Uh, They were really excited about it. Um, The wedding ended with the frog leading the children out of the wedding hall in a Pied Piper-style fucking procession (laughs) down the block and around the street. Later that night, this frog, who, just a couple of weeks ago sat on its knees next to me, towering above me in my own bed and let out one of the longest and loudest ribbits I have ever heard. This frog and I later that night met behind a very, very flimsy door that was not closed all the way. On the other side of this flimsy door were 14 of my relatives sleeping on the floor. The frog and I kissed. And then we made out. And then we started making out behind unclosed doors in family homes all across the country for about a month. It was the most fun I had ever had. Um, frog skins, fucking disgusting, yeah. <laughs> slippery, covered in mucus, good lube. It took us a while to make that particular realization. We started off with a lot of Chase touching and pecks on the lips. Um, but we figured it out towards the end of the trip. Um, and the illicit thrill, of course, strengthened this supernatural appearing and disappearing steampunk machine in my torso. It supercharged it in a way. I knew for a fact already when I opened my mouth that the things that were coming out of them were lies. If you feed lies into a truth to lie converting lie detection machine, the lies that come back are super Saiyan level. This cycle, now superhumanly and supernaturally strengthened by the new lies that I was feeding it, um, made the machine in my torso that had already lost me multiple jobs, made me miss multiple deadlines, ruined friendships, and debilitated my body to the point of, making me miss weeks, sometimes months worth of time because it would put me into a slumber that I couldn't wake up from, was now stronger than it had ever been. The machine also got stronger with every time I told a lie to a colleague, to a supervisor, to someone to whom I could not explain from the beginning of the story, all of the details and incidences that led up to this completely incomprehensible situation of having an immobilizing machine take over half your body. It's not something you can very easily explain to a boss on a Tuesday morning during a weekly check-in. I've been in a slumber for the last three weeks. It's actually the longest, continuous, machine-induced, magical, time-sapping, world-disappearing slumber that I have ever experienced. And I woke up on the other side of that slumber with a few things destroyed in my absence. And then I switched on my computer, and I booked a flight to Atlanta. This weekend is a weekend that's been prophesied for 12, 13 years. Um, I remember a skinny Indian boy that I thought I had a crush on in the common room of our dorm. the very first night that we gathered there told me that uh, his sister had gone through a story that I didn't know yet was about to be my own, but that I had heard could potentially become mine. He said it ended in a flight and a conversation. And he said that there were earthquakes afterwards, earthquakes that, spanned continents, and ended lives. The life-ending part, unfortunately, is another part of this truth that I don't really know how to process yet. So, um, this weekend I'm gonna be potentially causing earthquakes, the kinds that create rifts that go miles deep, that travel under oceans, create new tectonic plates, make themselves known in multiple countries, and touch literally hundreds of people. And I will be at the center of it. I have been told, that people might die as a result of it. I have told myself that I might die many times in my own room, on my own bed, with a hand placed on a cold metal machine. I am curious to know, whether I'll live. I'll find out soon enough. The inevitability and the seeming prophecy of this very true story lends it a certain magic that hopefully will allow for something truly remarkable to happen, as is the case with fantastical stories sometimes. So I'll hold on to that hope for now. Um, And I appreciate you all being a part of the landscape that defines the most important week of my life. and I'm excited to see the other side. Thank you.
0: If you're interested in performing, send us an email at BigTalkPodcast at gmail.com or contact us through our website at BigTalkChicago.com. And be sure to join us the fourth Tuesday of every month for a live recording at Howard Street Brewing at 1617 West Howard Street in Chicago.
1: Blah, blah, blah. Big Talk.